0: Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Open your scriptures to 1st John. This is the second sermon. We did an overview sermon that included uh, the first four verses, which is John's introduction. And now we're getting into the first main section. There are at least two sections to this entire letter. um, But now we move into his first big idea, the first main section. Uh, 1 John is written to a believing community. John, the Apostle John, wrote to a believing community of people that that are dealing with instability caused by the departure of people that were divisive. Look at 1 John 2.19. This is some of the context. 1 John 2.19 states, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's what John is speaking into with this believing community. The people who departed held beliefs and practices that John could not endorse because the beliefs and the practices did not align with the truth. The truths that John has communicated in the Gospel of John and the truths he will re-communicate here. And again, he says he's not writing to them any new thing. He's actually bringing forward to them things he's already communicated. Here's how John responds. We're going to see this. He, re- he really does what the Apostle Paul does in a lot of his letters. He, he responds by establishing a doctrinal foundation or framework, and then he builds on that foundation the ethical implications. Okay? Orthodoxy, right teaching, should always lead to orthopraxy, which is right living. This is where John is moving Okay, because this church, this small community of believers, had grown unstable. I want you. I want to remind you of the purpose. Then, look at 1 John 5, verse 13. Because the orthodoxy, the right teaching, and the right living are built on this primary purpose. 1 John 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe. Do you remember the purpose of his gospel? His account of the gospel. He he wrote so that they would believe something, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But now he's writing to believers, and this is what he's writing to them about. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. What does he want them to know? This is going to identify the instability that these other people have caused. He wants them to know what? Right, You are open, 1 John five, verse 13, that you have eternal life. These are the people that believed his account of the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. But now they had grown unstable in their belief that they actually had eternal life. This is why John is writing. The letter has a clear introduction. Chapter one, verses one to four. A clear conclusion. Chapter five, verses 18 to 21. And he's going to he's going to keep circling back to three themes. Truth. Life and love. Let's look at verse 5, 1 John 1. And the section is marked off by this introductory phrase, this is the message. Okay, this is the truth. And he's going he's gonna to do, in the first section, he's going to present to you God as light. And then he's, in the second section, he's going to introduce to you God as love. So here is his first big idea, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is a light and in him is no darkness at all. Light and darkness are common metaphors to most religions. But what John is doing is he's actually tapping back into the Old Testament use where John is affirming God as light all the way back in Exodus 3. Moses experienced God as fire. Do you remember that? And he removed his sandals because there was something about purity and something about holiness and something about light that was communicated in that. In Exodus 13:21, do you remember God was leading the Israelites through the wilderness? And how did he lead them? By day, there was a pillar of cloud and, and at night, a pillar of what? Of fire, right? Which, which produced light so that they could travel in the desert uh, In the evening as well. When the tabernacle was built, God's presence was signaled with fire in the golden lampstands. He's a light. He illumines. The psalmist says this in Psalm 104 verse 2, God wraps himself in light as with a garment. And so the psalmist appeals to that in Psalm 4 verse 6, let the light of your face shine upon us. Light and darkness are used metaphorically in scripture in two ways. Primarily, the first one is intellectually, there's light, and the second one is morally, uh, where light is purity over darkness and evil. Let's look at this. Truth is light. Proverbs 623. The commandment is a lamp and the teaching a what? A light. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet. And a light to my path. Second Peter one nineteen. Here is an eyewitness, but Peter says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. And listen how he describes it, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Isaiah forty nine verse six. I will make you Israel as a light for nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We focus this morning our missions moment on the Curtis family. I noticed Lance didn't try to pronounce the town. It's uh, Lubumbashi. And that was only uh, located several hours north of where we lived for five and a half years. And when you get out into the African bush, it is dark, dark, dark. And when there's no moon, it is very, very dark. And so what you always want to make sure you bring is your torch, as they call it, your flashlight. Because a light illumines... In the dark. Okay, you go up to Lubumbashi and it's very dark. You go to Kitwe, Zambia, outside of the city, and you get back just in a little back dirt roads. You need light. Okay, this is the idea that light illumines. It is a lamp to our path, a light to our feet. But morality is also connected to the symbolism of light. Listen to Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 5: At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Here's the moral implication: Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Romans 13:12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So this is the message. Look at 1 John 1 verse 1. That Jesus, the word of life, is who? He is God who is light. From the Old Testament to Revelation, all the way into the New Testament, Jesus is not simply A human like the rest of us, but He is God who is light. He said the same exact thing in His account of the Gospel. In John 1, verse 4, He says this, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The logos, the Word, who took on flesh is light. John 1, verse 14. Look at what else 1 John 1, verse 5 says. That there is no darkness at all. God doesn't hide in the shadows. There's no secrecy to God. It It is the nature of God to reveal Himself and to reveal Himself accurately. And if you ever wonder if you know who God is, even the Old Testament God Jesus came so that you might know who the Father so how would how would god the father interact with sinful human beings you see it in jesus how does he deal with lepers how does he deal with people caught in sin you see that in jesus christ he reveals himself and he is still light and in him is no darkness at all john chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 9-11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Jesus Christ is Creator God, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. John eight twelve. listen to what Jesus says. He says to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And then in John 12, he says this. I mean, this is just a primary theme that John keeps going back to that Jesus was teaching. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Do you remember what happened when they extinguished the light of the world? When they crucified Jesus on the cross, several miracles happened. But one of those was what? Supernatural. At noon, supernatural darkness. The light of the world had been extinguished. And he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. And then John 12, 46, he says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's the truth. That's the message. That's where he begins. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, that's that's the foundation. Now Now, now we're going to notice how he builds on this foundation, and it basically is a moral implication that exposes excuses. Look at verse 6. There are three counterfeit claims of the false teachers. Okay, A lot of times we go right to verse 9, and we we love the truths of verse 9, but we fail to see that John is actually correcting what the false teachers had sown within this little group of believers. There are three counterfeit claims. Each is introduced by the formula, if we say, look at verse 6. If we say this, okay, look at verse 8. If we say, and then look at verse 10. If we say, so basically he is echoing what the false teachers, those who had departed, were teaching. And he he, he goes through and he finally uh, debunks their false teaching. So first, he introduces the false teaching with that formula. Secondly, I want you to see this. He contradicts it with a clear statement. So look at verse 6. If we say, and then look at after the comma, after darkness, we lie. Okay. If we say that, then look at verse eight. If we say, here's the here's here's the contradiction. We deceive ourselves. And then verse ten. If we say, then we make him a liar. So there's this formula that sort of is being unravelled throughout this. Finally, he then makes a positive and true statement to combat the error. But if we, if we, he says three examples, all ending differently. So we're going to look at these. Look at verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him, with who? With the light within whom is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So, so the, here's the denial. If we say that we are fellowshipping God while habitually practicing sin, we're lying. It is a contradiction to claim to have communion with God, who is light, while habitually walking in darkness morally. But I want you to note, he takes an unexpected turn, and this is surprising. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with... What, What would you expect him to say? We have fellowship with God. But he doesn't. He actually... That's true. We do have fellowship with him, but he actually takes and makes the application that we have fellowship with one another if we're in the light. So you have this group of people that left. They were divisive. They were sowing wrong teaching. And now John is going to say, if you're actually walking with God in the light, it produces sweet communion. Yes, with God. But also right here. That's the application. And if it's not, then we're actually lying about walking in the light. And you can take an inventory of your own heart, of my my own heart, my own life. Am I walking in unity with my brothers and sisters? Because if I'm saying, no, I'm in the light, but I'm actually bitter or at odds with someone, John says, I'm lying. Right? That's a a hard truth. But that's one of these truths that's coming out. We have fellowship one with another. Look at at verse 8. Here's the second claim he refutes. And basically he's saying, it is false to deny that we have sinned at all. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 3.23, what does that say? For Say it with me. For all have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. So for somebody to say they've never sinned, or it is not sin, he says, you've deceived yourselves. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You have to understand that your sin comes with a curse. So when we come to know the truth about God, that He is light, and that's His nature, the right response then is, Not to say that we haven't sinned, but look at verse 9. This is where the familiar verse comes in. If we confess our sins. Right? That's the right response to sin. Not to say, I haven't sinned, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We talked about this in the conscience class. If you confess to a crime, the last thing you want to hear is that the judge you will face is the most righteous and exacting judge in the city. You'd rather want, I think, you would want a lenient, fair, but not exacting injustice judge. When you understand that God is light, and in Him is no darkness, and He knows the law perfect, and you're going to stand before Him and give an account to Him. And you know He's simply going to look at the law and make you pay for your crimes. This, this, is, a, this is a very firm, stubborn, inflexible truth. He is just. He's going to evaluate your crime and He's going to force it exactly. See, faithful we understand. And that, and that word is connected to God's covenants. right? He's entered into an agreement with us. He he will keep his promises. But just, we often associate that with penalty and punishment. And that's the divine dilemma. How can God be faithful and just and yet let us get away with our crime? Because if he did, he's not just. Verse 110. And we're going to look at that in a second. Uh, Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar because he's told us we've sinned and his word is not in us. Here's here's where the gospel comes in. Look at chapter two, verse one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the ideal. But if anyone does sin, there's the hope. Hope in the face of God's blazing Holiness, even though God's character is white, hot, blazing light, there is hope because he's faithful and just. Listen to Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him. There's the idea of fellowship, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Here's the one who inhabits All eternity, who's holy, and yet he enters into fellowship with us, and this is the one characteristic he puts forward, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Why? Because that is the only way you can receive God's gift of grace. To revive the spirit of the lowly, he says, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you know that when we continue to sin as believers, he's writing to believers, I'm writing these things to you little children, that that children who continue to sin... But here's the reality, the gospel reality is God's already forgiven you. Matter of fact, that's when you know you're getting close to grace is when you start to realize that even the sins you have not committed yet have already been paid for. And of course, Paul's going to make that argument in Romans and he's going to say, well, should we just continue to sin then so that grace may abound? Right. You've got it. If you've never asked that question, well, then why not just keep sinning so that grace can be bigger? But see, you ask that question when you start to understand what grace is. Grace is God gifting you something you don't deserve. And of course, Paul's going to say, God forbid, how can we continue on sinning in light of this incredible gift? But because he is an exacting judge, which is you want him to be just. Because he's an exacting judge, he is faithful and just not to hold your sin against you. For him to refuse to pardon you because all your sins were already dealt with in Christ, God would then be unfaithful and unjust. Right? Does that make sense? So if you confess your sin, you don't say you haven't sinned. You don't say that what you've done is, is not sin. And you don't, you don't make him a liar and you don't deceive yourself but you actually, the right appropriate response is this, you confess it to God and then He forgives. He is faithful and just to forgive when you confess. So let me ask you this morning, have you confessed your sin? Have you agreed with God? Do you say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin? And are you walking in the light Well, how do you know? You have fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do we have fellowship with one another here? Or is there something between us? Is there something between me and you? Is there something between you and another? Is there something? Because that's what he's saying. This is the point. And he's trying to bring this group of believers back from being rattled by the false teachers. And he's making this very clear. He's trying to bring peace and he's saying, don't say you're walking in the light if you don't have fellowship. I love what it says there in the beginning of chapter 2. He is the propitiation for our sin and not for ours only, but for, this, but for the whole world. What is, what is propitiation? That's a huge theological word. Propitiation has to do with what? God's wrath. Does God pour out wrath upon sin? Yes, he has to. So how is he faithful and just? Okay, so let me ask you, when was the Father's wrath poured out against your sin? On Jesus, on the cross. And, and by the way, Jesus didn't just deflect God's wrath for another, for another time, another date. He absorbed God's wrath. He emptied the full cup of God's wrath for you. That's grace. And therefore, God being faithful to his promises and just, he had to punish sin somehow. The wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. And it's either you for eternity or it is Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So, there is no hope by saying you haven't sinned, there's no hope by saying that what you did wrong is not sin. There's only hope in this if we confess our what? our sin. He is what? faithful and just to forgive us our sin and it's a beautiful picture because sin is defilement and dirt. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that this morning? That's the gospel. That's the good news. Are you walking in the light? Now, should Christians recklessly continue to sin and not confess? See, there's a sense where all your sin is already paid for. All your sin is already forgiven. But what we have to be careful of is that fellowship. When we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and we have fellowship with God. That's where we come back as believers. We confess. There's reconciliation. There's restoration. And we walk in the light as He is in the light. Have you, though, unbeliever, confessed your sin? Here's, here's the beautiful picture of the Gospel. If you confess, He is faithful and just to forgive. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ.